Hi there, and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free at LogRocket.com today. My name is Paul, and joined with us we have Tobias Coppers. He is the creator of Webpack and TurboPack, and he's here to talk to us about why we're going to be rethinking our bundling strategies, or why, Tobias, you have been ruminating on rethinking bundling strategies. What a privilege it is to have you on. I'm so excited to get into it. And as a user of Webpack myself, as I'm sure a lot of people are, very excited to pick your brain about what's going on in the latest and greatest. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. Yeah, it's great to meet you too. So Webpack's been one of those things that I've used. I'm sure listeners, you have all used it throughout your whole development career. And to be honest, Tobias, you won't see your name on a billboard necessarily anywhere. So, it's, <laughs> or uh, see YouTube videos by the hundred. So it's really great to zero in and double click on a little bit of some of the intricacies that go into the thing that you built that has helped thousands, if not millions of developers over the years and why you're rethinking things. Yeah, that's kind of funny thing because yeah, Webpack is quite old now. It's like 11 years old or so, and it's so well used. So it's hard to make bigger changes in Webpack. So yeah, that, that is a problem in like making like these kind of architectural changes or making stuff changes that have a larger impact on users and would be a large backend change. So facing this problem while working on Next.js and we want to make some bigger changes and. The problem was like, it was not possible with Webpack. So we go the way that we created a new bundler that is inspired by Webpack, but do some stuff differently. And there are a few topics I wanted to change and uh, there are probably a lot that come up in the next time. Yeah. And the primary focus was on the performance topic, which was hard to make major improvements in Webpack because it would require to change the like, big architecture and could have done that, but I don't want to like make the Webpack 6, which is a really, or Backpack 10 or whatever version that is a really big breaking change and breaks like every plugin, every user configuration and that stuff, especially when migrating to a different language from JavaScript to Rust or something that's faster. So we did go the way to make it like a new tool and with a new name, but with inspired by Webpack and trying to change the architecture and all that stuff behind that. So Terrible pack you're saying was inspired by Webpack and its history. Yeah, it shares a lot of stuff with Webpack. It has like similar output format. It shares stuff, but it also did some stuff differently. So it's like it's inspired. It should be something where you can migrate from Webpack. It probably won't be like a one-to-one -one migration. It's something that's different, but it's like similar. At least it fulfills the same use case that Webpack. Before we get into some of the things you're rethinking here and some of the differences between Webpack and TurboPack. Rewinding 12 years or 11 years or whatever it was, what made you wake up and just say, we're going to try this? I'm going to try this out. Was it just like frustration or you thought you could like, you had a skill like this so you could do something for the community? Yeah, it's a funny story because I wasn't into web development at all. I did my master thesis at this time. I just had fun like writing a web application. And I tried this the first time. It was my first web application. And I was missing like some kind of tool that does the build stuff. And I wasn't into web at all, so I didn't know about any of these tools like Borsify, RequireJS at that time. So I basically built my own tool. So not from sweat, it's more like I found one of these tools, which was a really small one, which is called Modules WebMake. Nobody used it, and now it's not well known. But anyway, I basically proposed to make a change to that, and it was like a bigger change. So I made a prototype, re-implementing it from scratch. 
with this feature, which was code spinning on the map loading at that time. And basically that prototype then developed into its own bundler. And I had fun maintaining this open source project. I had fun communicating with other people trying to use it. It was more like a hobby project, just implement that, help users with that, respond to issues, like this open source stuff. And that was why I created Webpack. It wasn't well known until two years later or so, when Pete Hunt from Instagram like made this bigger talk where I basically promoted Webpack first time in a conference. And then it had more attraction. But before that, it was just like a random like 20 people using it and, and I had fun developing it. That's the most important part. It was a labor of love. It shows in the impact it had too. So turning to the present day, you're rethinking some things. You already mentioned some right when we hopped into the podcast, like a lot of performance related questions. And it's hard to make these large architectural changes when so many people, there's millions of other developers who depend on it, right? So one of the things you're rethinking now is leveraging browser cache. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, there, there are a few topics like performance is one of them. We want to change some long-term caching, other leveraging browser cache stuff. Mm -hmm. And we also want to change some architecture regarding client-server interaction and that stuff, especially regarding like server components and that kind of new technology stuff. I mean, starting just with performance, because I'm sure everybody is very interested in this, waiting for their builds to happen. Browser cache. It can be used in a bunch of different ways. How are you extending the functionality browser cache to speed up TurboPack? Like the idea is that all the bundles basically use browser cache and um, it's more like how you structure stuff in a way that you can get the most benefit out of the browser cache store. So the idea is that you basically want to have everything into the browser cache and the idea is that you deploy something new, a new version of your application, you change something and then you want in the best case that everything you didn't change or didn't touch is still in the browser cache and that can be used and you, the producer only need to download basically your changes that you did. And technically if you go just unbundled and with raw ESM modules, then you can do something like that because every module is a single request and then you can leverage the cache for all of that. And bundling basically breaks it a little bit because then you put more stuff into one file, then it's basically invalid a larger file when you change something. And all of this stuff where you want to have content hashes on file names that makes it more difficult to leverage the product in the correct way. So if you go with a naive approach, let me explain that. The idea is that you have a lot of output for your, of your bundle. So basically, you start with an HTML file, of course. And then that references like chunks of basically JavaScript files, CSS files, whatever. And these make maybe one JavaScript file, sometimes another JavaScript file because it's asynchronous loaded on demand. And then maybe that file references some images, some font files, and all this stuff. And basically, all your stuff in your application is connected in some kind of way. And the idea here is that to leverage browser cache, there basically sweet kind of things you can leverage in the browser. You can just put a max edge on your request and say that this is event for two hours or for two days or whatever. But in practice, nobody does that for this kind of application because then you basically chip an important bug fix and you have to wait two days before the browser cache because the users pick up the change. So basically once you deploy something and you basically want next user comes to your application, instantly see that change. So you don't do that. So then there are other techniques to do that than to basically leverage browser cache. And one other thing is like e-tech caching, which means you send the first request. So the browser sends the first request and the server answered, answers with like response, sends you that data and they put all of this e-tech header on the response, which basically is the cache of the content. So it's like e-tech, A, B, C, D, whatever. 
And then the next time the browser wants to do the same request, it basically sends a new request, but adds this like if non-match header with the e-tag, with the previous e-tag. So it, it basically says, I want the resource again, but I have something with this hash in my cache already. And then the server usually says, text, yeah, if it's the same hash, then I just respond with, okay, yeah, just use the hash and don't send the response. And if something is updated, it just resends the response with a new e-tag. And that works well because then you don't have to download the file again, but you still have to make a request and get a response. So still you pay the round trip to the server, but you don't you skip on the downloading phase. So that's good. And you can basically use it for every request that's in your universal strategy. So if you use like a build tool, you basically can do better. So that is that if you just put a like cache set for one year header on the resource and make sure this resource never changes, then you can just cache it infinitely and the browser doesn't have to do any request at all. It can just use it from cache. And there's also a special cache control immutable header for that to make it more efficient, but it doesn't make it better. But to do that, to make a resource that never changes, you basically like what I said, you can't really do it because you want to fix something in your application, to redeploy your application, then the resource changes. So basically to fix that problem, there's a little trick. And the trick is basically makes the URL just unique in this kind of sense that you just put a hash of the content into the URL. You often see that in resources and in file names output by bundlers, which just put like a content hash or hash of the content onto the file name and then it's unique and it basically never changes because if it would change, the hash would change and it's a new URL and then it's not in the border cache anymore. So the bundlers basically do that. They put content hashes on every asset they output. But then the problem is now you have this application with a lot of references between assets. And in practice, this means if you have an image or something that is referenced in a JavaScript file, which is referenced in an HTML file, you have to put the URL of the image with the content hash into the JavaScript file because it's referenced from there. And you have to put the URL of the JavaScript file into the HTML file because it's referenced there. So basically you have to embed the hashes of the referenced assets in the importing modules, importing assets. And that leads to the issue that if you just do it the way I described, then if you change your image, that will change the content hash of the image, which is embedded into the JavaScript file, which means the JavaScript file all the changes, and then this is embedded into maybe the next JavaScript file. And this all the changes. It's basically this bubbling effect where one change bubbles up the application and invalidates your half of your application just because you changed one image or one font or whatever. And that's usually not something you want. Do you want to do something better? And Webpack also does something better. Instead of having a lot of uh, JavaScript assets that are uh, reference each other, Webpack puts all the content hashes of all the files, of all the JavaScript files, but called chunks in Webpack, and it puts everything into a manifest file, which contains all the content hashes, although it's also in the same time the Webpack runtime. So Webpack runtime basically embeds the manifest of that. And that fixes this problem in the kind of sense that now, because the JavaScript files or chunks doesn't like reference each other directly anymore, they don't have to embed the content hash of the reference files, every content hash is embedded to the manifest. So once you change something, it basically bumbles only to the manifest and the manifest handles the change. The manifest is really small, so it doesn't really matter that it changes, but all the other JavaScript files can stay cached because they didn't change, because they don't embed the reference hash. And that works well. If I could jump in, Tobias, just for a second and make sure I have the right understanding of what you're talking about. So in the naive approach, you described how you can use well, you can just cache, but then you want to like hash the content. So you have the content hash as well as with the tag. So then this way you could have like infinite caching theoretically. 
But then you have the problem of you bubble up changes so frequently with small adjustments that you end up almost with a useless architecture sometimes. Yeah, I would say it's working well if you don't update the application that often. Mm -hmm. So if you only deploy it once a week or something, it's fine, it works. If the caching works, if a user comes like multiple times a week, then they have the cache. And it's only affecting you. So it's like a kind of luxus problem <laughs> where you just have like caching works and browser doesn't have to do requests, but the problem is only if you update your application. And that's something I want to optimize it, like basically Webpack optimizes. And so when Webpack does this, you have this manifest level yeah. in between just the raw content and the hashtags that get produced. Did you have a larger question to yourself about what level of detail this manifest sits at? Yeah, so in Webpack, it sits at chunks level. So only like all the JavaScript files and all the style sheets are in this manifest and only like these that are on demand loaded. So initial chunks don't need to be in the manifest because we never have reference them anyway. And we basically don't do it for like assets, images and fonts and just accept one level of bubbling in this case, because I think it doesn't really matter that much. And it's better trade-offs. So you would blow up your manifest if you put like all the images into the manifest too, then it's the manifest is really large, but the chances like don't have that much bubbling. Or if you just put the references of the hash of images into chunks, then you have the one level of bubbling extra. You invalidate your JavaScript chunk that is reverence to the image. But yeah, the manifest is smaller. And the manifest is a cost you have to consider. Do you always have to load it up front? Do you have to load all the hashes up front? Yeah. So it's a trade-off. And I think it works fine because I think 90% of your application is like the JavaScript files that is the code of your application. And yeah, images don't change that often. It's often, if you change the image, you often also change like your component or something like that, or if you change the font. So it works. Maybe we could make it like experiment with that, but I don't really mind. It's not that important. And the chunks that you talk about, the delineation of where these chunks happen in Webpack, is it just arbitrary? Is it by size? Is it by file? Yeah, so the splitting of chunks. Yeah, that's basically another topic where like how you split up those modules into chunks. And that's also contributing to long-term caching because take an example, you have like your application code and you have some vendor code like React or Vectorm or something like that. And in most cases, your application code changes really often because you work on your application, it's changed really often. And your vendor code changes really like infrequently. So it's like rarely update your dependencies and at least most of the people do. So the have to consider that's also something Webpack does. So it basically splits your modules into two groups by default, like application code and vendor code, and consider this as they basically change independent of each other in this kind of sense. And if you know that something changes independent of each other, like application code and vendor code, then you can go on and basically put like application code in a different file than a vendor code. And that is a pretty easy technique to do. And it works pretty well because your vendor code, if it doesn't change, you don't uh, have this chunk changing. And your application code often changes, so this is often changing, but doesn't affect the vendor code. Basically, the problem I talked before that we put multiple modules into one chunk. And then if one of these modules changes, of course, we have to re-emit the chunk. So the chunk changes, so we can't cache all the other modules. So you don't want to put modules together in a chunk that change different, so change the like. Mm -hmm. So basically, you don't want to like have often changing modules in the temp chunk with rarely changing modules because then like once the often changing module changes, you also invalidate like all the less frequently changing. 
the original problem. Right. Yeah. So it's a pretty easy technique. And vendor and app splitting works well. And you can go even further. If you have a lot of vendor modules, maybe you split by when package name or something. That's also something that's done. And there's a lot of heuristic you can use there. And we also reconsider some of them to do like total pack. So the default is only split app application and vendor code and don't do any special heuristic on vendor codes. And for total pack, we also split by package name. And then if the chunk is still too large, we split up by like folder structure and that stuff. So because folder structure often like in, it have similar caching heuristics, uh, changing heuristics. So a lot of things you can do. And often people configure Webpack also in a way that maybe you speak up by package name or something like so. Or you can also put like custom heuristic in your application with something is rarely changing. In example, Next.js does it. It basically also puts like a framework code. So everything Next.js related into a separate chunk. So it's like basically Next.js Next code, application code, other vendor code, and that, yeah, it helps. So I feel like we've gotten a really good groundwork for all of the engineering lift. That or just the sense of scale that goes into like the decisions that you're making to bias. Like we have chunking, we have caching. It was interesting to learn a little bit about how the primitives of Webpack work, especially for me, never having dug into what's going on behind the scenes. So that was really great to hear. But this podcast is all about what's new on your mind, right? What's coming in, in the new improvements that we're going to be talking about. So we're going to get into that. And you specifically brought up Next.js. Curious to hear how the recent developments with RSCs, the page delineations, and, and how that's playing into um, bundling things up more efficiently. Before we hop into that, I just want to remind our listeners that this podcast is brought to you by LogRocket. So for your web application, no matter how big or how small, if you want to spend less time debugging and more time just building, bundling, shipping, getting into your customers, you should check out LogRocket because it helps you find and surface issues you just didn't notice. You can use features to surface trends that might have slipped past you. You have heat maps and all other sorts of goodies to figure out what your users are doing and what your client-server interactions are doing behind the scenes. So head over to lockrocket.com today and check it out for free. So moving into the now and the future, Tobias, and honestly, like the past year or so, what's been brewing, you're making some improvements to the way you're thinking about bundling things. One of the things that I just want to hop out the gate and begin our conversation with is the per-page manifest. And that's one reason why I asked about the manifest priors. I wasn't really familiar about how you place things in the manifest, what layer you put it at. Can you talk to me a little bit about what a per-page manifest means, why it's a big deal, and why it makes changes? Maybe back to the long-term caching topic. So I basically explained it, what Webpack does, it put everything in manifest. But the problem is, if you have a multi-page application, like a Next.js application, where you have a multi multiple entry points to your application, renter, whatever, on sales, or on contact, or on dashboard, or whatever, and then you also have the ability to navigate between pages within a client-side navigation. So they, they want to have this single-page application feel if you entered one page and then navigate to another page, then it's just a client-side transition. So with this in mind, if you want to do that with Webpack, you basically have to build like all the endpoints in Webpack into a single compilation. And that means that also means like because you have this basically client-side transition thing between pages, you have to make sure that all of these pages are using a single runtime because every module is basically a single one-time, a module at runtime. So it's like basically 
in the webpack world, it's like a single one time for the whole application with multiple endpoints. And that also means that you have a single manifest because it's a single runtime. And as I told you that like the manifest is embedded into the runtime, not loaded at runtime time. So that's basically a single runtime for all the pages in the application. And that's an issue because then you have to like these hundreds of pages and then all these pages import a lot of JavaScript files, a lot of images and whatever. And like for all these pages, all the on-demand loaded stuff or all the, the JavaScript stuff basically embeds their content hash into the single manifest cell, which has a lot of issues. One thing is it blows up your manifest because it gets larger and larger when your application grows, which is not something you usually want. But it also has a problem like basically if you change something, one image in one page, basically bubbles, like it basically changes the manifest. And that basically bu also bubbles up to all the HTML files. So basically all the HTML files, which basically embeds the hash of the manifest, change because you did one change to one page. It's kind of working. It works. And it doesn't have that bad of a performance because HTML often is not cached anyway. So it's, it's fine. But I wanted to change that for the back. So I wanted to have like more per page. I want to have every page isolated in changes. And then an obvious change if you yeah, expand all these things. So basically, instead of having a global manifest, I just made it like a pair page manifest. And that basically fixes the issue that it's bubbling all the changes to all the HTML files. You have to change a few things, like the runtime. You have to be able to load multiple runtimes and merge it together and merge the manifest together. But these are only small technical changes. It's basically more like an architectural change as to make it work. So it's more of like an architectural change, like you said, in the way you load it. Because when I hear per page manifest, I'm thinking like, okay, there's like another derivative layer of serialization going on behind the scenes. But you're saying it's not that extreme. It's more just... It, it, yeah, if you start from scratch, basically you don't have to do anything special to do that. Like to just put it like just made it this way. But you basically can't change WebPack because it, it would break like applications because it's not considered the architecture. It's just everything is embedded in this manifest and you can't easily change that in WebPack. But you can easily change that or rewrite that if you write a new bundle. So that's what we did. There's always like you, you do something different, but then new challenges come up and you have new problems to face that you didn't have to face before. Like now we have this problem of merging manifest and merging runtime and that stuff. Yeah, it's fun, but it's also kind of cool to face new problems. I mean, merging manifest and combining these runtimes of the operational islands. I don't want to use that term too much because it's used a lot in web dev. But like you have these separate runtimes with all their per page manifest for the client side bubble that you're in. And then you merge them together. It makes me think of tree shaking because tree shaking kind of plays into maybe you have some things here and you don't need them there. So I'm curious about how tree shaking has played a role in the new bundler that you've created. Yeah, tree-shaking is another big topic in this kind of bundler thing. And I really didn't like how tree-shaking works in Webpack because when Webpack started, we didn't have any CrackMarket module stuff. We only had CommonJS, we had RequireJS. Everything was like, you export an object and then it's fine. You don't have to care about like individual exports. So like five years after Webpack was created, like ECMAScript modules were developed by SSPEC and that basically everyone is using that now. And ECMAScript modules has a special thing that you have individual exports that are like exported on its own and you can reference them in an input statement and that kind of stuff. And that enables something which basically Rollock really focused on where you can just, if you only import like export A from a module, then we don't want to like 
maybe skip all the other exports of the module and that stuff and stuff. And, and in the way it's implemented in Webpack, it's basically like after we created like the module graph and figured out like all the modules the application uses, we basically go through a graph, check all the imports and check like for every module, we basically check which imports are used and then we take note of that and basically all the unused export, we can just omit them at code generation time. So we, we can just omit them. And that kind of works, but it has a few small downsides. One is like performance. So we basically create the module graph beforehand, do everything without tree shaking, and then tree shaking is like a separate step afterwards. So it works. It doesn't affect runtime performance, but it basically affects like the performance at build time. So you, you have to build all these unnecessary modules that may or not be used at, at all because it would be tree shaked uh, like a step, a step afterwards. I wanted to change that. And in TurboPack, we basically do tree shaking during module graph building. And so we can just skip modules like while building the module graph, but because we do the tree shaking or the export stuff while building the module graph. So that's a change you can do when you rewrite that stuff. And another thing is that the way tree shaking works is basically it takes notes of all the exports used per module, but it also means if page A uses export one of a module and page B uses export two of a module, then the whole thing figures out that export one and two are used of this module and that the module is generated with export one and two, and maybe three is omitted, but one or two is generated. And the problem is like, technically we don't need export two in page A and we don't need export one in page B, but I could must just figure out both of them are used. And because we only generate for technical reasons, because at one time we only like basically deduplicate that module. So we only use, you must make sure that this module is only used once because it might have state or something. Basically identity of functions is not the same. So we have to generate the code in one shape for the whole application. And that kind of is sad because now we have like this problem again where any arbitrary page affects like maybe your homepage, which is affected by like the admin side of this thing. So you want to avoid that and it's complicated to avoid that. And I tried a little bit in Webpack to avoid that. If you have separate entry points that completely separate, then you can avoid it. But if you have entry points that want to import each other, like in a way we do time side transitions to the same page, then yeah, it's basically doesn't work. So we, we figured out that we need something more involved in TurboTech to fix that. And now in TurboTech, we do a really complicated transformation. So instead of having modules as smallest unit of things that are put into chunks, we basically split up the module into fragments. So we basically split the module with uh, import one, two, and three into like smaller fragments, like module fragment one, module fragment two, and that stuff. So basically for every export, we create like a small fragment. And then instead of making a module graph, we make a module fragment graph where we only reference like single exports at all. And then we can basically put like fragments into chunks and then we basically split up the module into its fragment and then put like fragment one into page A and fragment two into page B. And then basically it solves the problem of having a module being one identity of the module. But it also faces a few challenges because in what's with shared state in modules, you basically have to like create a new fragment just for the shared state and reference the shared state fragment from both pages and that stuff. Like a little bit more involved, but that's the idea to split up modules in fragments and then place fragments into chunks. And that fixes the problem of having this kind of global effects between pages. And it's basically the same idea of isolating pages and making pages isolated to like don't affect other stuff. Did the fragmentation 
of a module, as an example, affect the way you think about hot module reload? Yeah, that's a kind of funny thing because hot module replacement HMR, in the old world with Webpack, we had to disable most of the tree shaking for development. Because the problem is like, if you have tree shaking, that basically means you change one module, maybe the module that imports another module. And if you change the imports, then this can trigger a bubble and effect to another module. So basically, you change the you maybe from one module, you import now, you change a module, and that now imports more to export two of a module. In the old tree shaking of Webpack world, that would basically means you change module A, and that would affect module B, because then new exports have to be generated or omitted from that module. And that's kind of bad for HMR, for module replacement, because every module that has changed, like, during compilation from compilation one to compilation two, that is basically sent to the client and basically updated on client side at runtime. And that also means this module is invalidated at runtime, this bubble up changes to the next accept boundary, maybe refresh and make a, a component, or maybe you also lose state in that module because it's reloaded or refreshed the module. And that kind of bad in this kind of sense because it, it Tree shaking with combined with tree shaking, it would like this kind of behavior where you like to change something and something unexpected happens somewhere else in your application and breaks something which is really unexpected. So we try to like make it that if you change one module, that should only affect that module. At least in development, it should only affect that module and isolate everything to like this module. So that once you do a change, you don't want this to touch any other module and have these global effects on application chain. And that's not only good for HMR, it's also good for uh, incremental builds because then if you have you change it localized to one module, your changes only affect that module. You only have to rebuild that module and don't have to re-co-generate other modules. And for this fragmentation thing, also works very with this new approach because now you fragmented stuff and you because you fragmented that and then you like not changing modules because you you're basically only adding and removing whole modules or whole fragments that also fixes the problem that if you change one module that affects another module because that doesn't happen anymore. Because now you only like add or remove other fragments, but you don't change fragments. And changing of fragments is a problem because changing a fragment would trigger an HMR thing and invalidation for that code. And yeah, basically fragmentation also solves that HMR problem with uh, tree shaking. So hopefully in future we can use tree shaking for development mode too. And that might help with performance or help with similarity of development and production builds and that kind of thing. And just to summarize what we've talked about so far in, in the new way of doing things, like we have per page manifest, tree shaking, and these differences that you noted between development and production so that we can keep the concerns of HMR and development and the smaller bundle size and production in check. Given these kind of ideas, would you say in general you're seeing smaller bundle sizes, like aside from speed, just like the end output size? So technically, module fragments helps this bundle size because you have pair module and fragmentation stuff that can help. So I don't think it matters that much and it doesn't matter for every application. And in some edge cases, it might affect, have a bigger effect on bundle size because it, you benefit from that case. But I'm not sure if it's like so common pattern and I would minification is more valuable and that's kind of stuff. And yeah, it helps with bundle size a little bit, but it, it won't be like a 20% boost in bundle size. I think we really need the boundaries of like where we can skip model code and that stuff. And I don't think it's so 
big boost on production builds. Most of the things we did for Turtle are mostly development related. So like incremental builds, it's mostly really fast. Incremental builds are mostly development thing. And we focused on that. And we didn't start with production builds, but at least for production builds to be really fast and with incremental builds, we would need something with persistent caching and the stuff. So that's another topic. We didn't start it on that, but that's maybe something for next year. And depending on when this podcast is like 2024. 20, so that's something where we can see bigger boost, boost in build time at least. It's like also the long-term caching thing. It's really hard to measure the benefit of that because it only takes effect for like users can come back after you've deployed a new application, build a new change. And yeah, it's hard to measure that benefit of that. It's not really something you can just measure by going one type to application. You have to, but maybe you have to measure your cache ratio from users, like when you develop your application, like over time. Yeah. Hard to see that, but I still think it's valuable to do these changes, even if like it's hardly noticeable for users and they, at least it's hardly measurable. But I think it's pretty cool. I mean, there's a bunch of other things we could get into about how you're rethinking in TurboPack. I definitely wanted to focus on that top layer, which is the per page manifest, and then underneath that, the fragments and how you're rethinking some of the chunks and stuff. But yeah, we're running out on time. We have a couple minutes left. I'm sure there's a lot more that people could explore about the innovations that you and the community are making. You did mention 2024 persistent caching. So aside from that, you're a theoretical guy, Tobias, like you're designing all these structures and you must get excited about some of these ideas. And it's like, wow, I, we could just do something better. What in 2024 are you looking at that you get your heart rate going a little bit because you're excited to just like dig into the optimizations and the theory behind it? Yeah, I'm really like into this once we have this persistent because we, like the whole architecture of Tobel builds around like incremental builds and I'm really looking forward to like once we have persistent cache and we have incremental builds and that combines well together and then we have this hopefully super fast production builds and that's what my dream and what I'm looking forward to and yeah it's still a long way to go but that's really what I'm into like this kind of when finally this is I, new architecture comes into like real benefits for the users. The HMR benefits we, we currently have the stone pack are really good, but it's not that like important if you have two seconds or two hundred milliseconds. That's nice to have. I think the production builds are really cool to see. And yeah, also this kind of two second stuff is also really cool and to see that in action. I'm really looking forward to production builds. It's kind of where the cool stuff is the optimization stuff and that, that's cool. <laughs> Everybody loves a good production build device. So I'm glad you feel <laughs> the same way. We're on the same team here. If people wanted to get the latest about what you personally are focused on, reminiscing about. Can people find you on Twitter, Mastodon? Where do you post? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, on X. <laughs> and yeah, I don't post that much on Twitter. It's more like what I do is like conference talks and you can look them up online. And that I basically all my interesting stuff is. I mean, if you Google Tobias's name, I'm sure you could find a lot and there's good YouTube videos. Mm -hmm. I know you did an interview with Jack Harrington five or six months ago, which was great to see. Tobias, it's been a pleasure having you on. I wish we had more time to dig into some of the technicals about TurboPack and the great work that you're doing. But in the meantime, until we get to have you on again, thank you for your time coming on. And hopefully some people can start to take advantage. These end users can really start to take advantage of the research and work you've been doing. Thanks for having me. Oh, oh, oh.